Hello, I'm Ann Powers, critic and correspondent for NPR Music and co-founder of Turning the Tables, the project that takes its inspiration from Queen Beyonce, who says, Who runs the world? Girls. Well, girls, women, non-binary folk, we're exploding the definition of girls because that's what we do. In our work, we focus on the voices and stories of artists who might have been overlooked or underestimated or, or misunderstood, given the way popular music history has usually been written, with men at the top of the heap. Women like Beyonce in the early part of her career, or like this one, Fiona Apple. We're going to be talking about Fiona Apple and Beyonce and salt and Peppa with an amazing trio of women writers today. First, we have Julianne Escobedo-Shepard, former editor-in-chief of Jezebel, longtime music critic, and current writer of a new book on hyper-masculinity in the American West. Hey, Julianne. Hi. Also joining us is Lindsay Zolads, another veteran music critic whom listeners might best know for her amazing work for The New York Times. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. And finally, we have NPR Music Editorial Assistant Letitia Harris, one of my absolutely favorite younger music writers on the scene. Hey, Letitia. Hi, Anne. That's so sweet. So last year, Turning the Tables published 12 essays by women and non-binary writers centered on one record by a woman musician that changed their life. You can read all of these essays at npr.org slash turningthetables. And this March, for Women's History Month, we're taking over all songs considered every Wednesday to go deep in conversation about the series. And I'm really excited to put you three in conversation with each other because each of you really got the assignment when we asked you to write about a pivotal point in your lives, adolescence, the quintessential tween girl realm comes up in every one of your essays. Julianne, in yours, you talk about being in your bedroom and listening to salt and Pepper. The bedroom, the girl's bedroom, such a romanticized space and a complicated space. Take us back to when you first heard salt and Pepper. I just have a really intense memory of listening to Black's Magic over and over and choreographing probably not great dances <laughs> to my <laughs> side, but just really being interested in the way that their power came through and sort of channeling that in this like exuberant way through my tween choreography. <laughs> So I just got to ask everybody, like, did we all dance in our bedrooms? I laid around. I danced. I was pretty versatile in my room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think more dancing than laying around over here, too. <laughs> <laughs> the teenage girl's bedroom is like, okay, who watches Euphoria? I just got to throw that in. Like, yes. when I, everyone. <laughs> when I think about, you know, the romanticization of the teen girl bedroom, in 2022, I think about Euphoria. But it's not always like that, right? It's not always that beautiful space, right, Julianne? I mean, it's kind of a lonely space sometimes, too. Yeah, it can be really lonely. And actually, to your Euphoria point, first of all, shout out to Rue for having Young M.A. poster. But also, <laughs> I, really, <laughs> I really do think that it depicts that sort of reality because a lot of it, when Rue is not, you know, 
engaging in her substance use disorder is her just being bored, lying on her bed, staring at the ceiling. And I think that the teen girl bedroom can be romanticized in some way, but often it's about, you know, engaging with your boredom and your loneliness. And I think that that is one thing that the Salt and Pepper album meant to me was because it it helped me feel less alone. So you write about this in your essay. Can you read a little bit of the essay for us? I can. Leading a pack that included Queen Latifah, MC Light, and Yo-Yo, Salt and Peppa cut through the bluster of the male artists of their era, peeling back the motivations of running game on a woman and expressly noting that no one had time for all that. Most mesmerizing, they comported themselves with a bold sense of self-respect, owning their sexuality, but with an uncompromising stance. Later, I came to realize that Black's magic shaped my own sense of individuality and self-sufficiency, that being a, quote, weird kid in a conservative state like Wyoming could be a point of pride, and that one day I could and would move to the city that fostered salt and Peppa's perspectives but also that those characteristics are better in numbers, particularly when your creative endeavor is shared in communion with your best girlfriends. And you had a song that really exemplified that for you, right? So, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, expression oh, yeah. till I die, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear a little bit of expression by Salt and Pepper from Black's Magic. You know, life oh, yeah, oh, yeah. is all about expression. You only live once and oh, you're not yeah, coming oh, yeah. back. So express yourself, yeah. Express yourself. You gotta be you and only you, babe. Express yourself. Let me be me. Express yourself. Don't tell me why I cannot do, baby. Come on and work your body. Man, weird kid. I feel like we are a coven of weird kids today. <laughs> This is a thread that runs through everybody's essay, feeling kind of out of place. And and while that is the quintessential adolescent experience that transcends gender, transcends every identity category, it's also very specific in how it relates to falling in love with music. And Letitia, I feel like you might be relating a bit to what Julianne's talking about, because your connection with Beyonce is sort of like your weird kid way out or something. Yeah, um, absolutely. I feel like Beyonce and pop punk were my like <laughs> tenants of weird girl. Um, don't talk to her. But I feel like seeing Beyonce make music with her best friends was so inspirational to me as a child. Like I knew very early on I wanted to create things with people I loved. I didn't have a very strong familial foundation and I found solace in Beyonce and her just very devout belief in herself and grounded accessibility there was a time when she would talk to the public, if people remember. Um, she's a very shy person, but her art is very loud and expressive, which I've always really admired. That's such an interesting thing to say because, I don't know, I'm going back to Julianne and, and uh, dancing in the bedroom. Is how much for you as teens was expressiveness, extroversion, something that had to be choreographed? And how did music do that? I mean, when I think about Beyonce being expressive, it's through her body, it's through dance. And with Salt and Peppa, I, I don't know if they even would have become the stars they did at the time when they did if they weren't able to dance so well. I don't know. I mean, what do you think about that, Julianne? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if they weren't dancing, they wouldn't have become the pop stars that they did. And, you know, they came out in a time where sort of everyone was dancing. It wasn't necessarily gendered. Like I think about, you know, Bobby Brown dancing his face off. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, but I do think that there was this expectation and there still is of pop stars to be able to hit choreography like perfectly on every beat and I think Letitia no one (laughs) exemplifies that like Beyonce I think it's really interesting though because the dancing and the body is also a place of um detriment sometimes like for Beyonce it's like oh she's a low-rate singer she just relies on her costumes and her dancing anyone can do what she does that's not true obviously so it's like a double-edged sword of the pop star being a body to move and dance and entertain, but the pop star also being confined to their ability or confined by their ability to dance and entertain. And like what happens in the gap of, um, I don't know, times when like our body fails us or doesn't need to perform for other people. We're going to get more into the question of what happens when our bodies fail us when we talk with you, Lindsay, about your relationship with Fiona. But I wonder like, as someone who was loving on alternative rock, it seems like in the 90s, were you also dancing in your bedroom to hip hop and R&B? I mean, I think of dancing as more something like communal that I did with my friends and choreographing mm-hmm. stuff. I think the space of when I was by myself listening to music, I was really intensely listening and reading lyric sheets and doodling some of the lyrics in my journal and things like that, which, you know, when we talk about Fiona Apple is kind of, she's a quintessential uh, (laughs) diary-esque writer. So I think that was a big part of my connection to her at that time. But this connects back to you, Letitia, too, because I feel like the Beyonce that meant the most to you, the Beyonce of the album Four, which came out when you entered adolescence, is a bit more of that, I don't want to say diaristic Beyonce, but you found a kind of, oh God, I'm going to use the worst word ever, my friends, <laughs> authenticity Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> in, in what she was doing on 4. I don't know, like, what was that like for you the moment you heard 4? Let me just start by saying that I was a very uncomfortable tween, just like very uncomfortable in my body, uncomfortable in my thoughts, expressing myself. My mom worked two jobs to support us, so I didn't really see her often. And I think without that strong support system, I just had no confidence (laughs) or a general understanding of how to socialize or communicate with other children. And before Beyonce dropped four, I got in trouble a lot because of that. I was like a feral cat. But I remember one time a teacher told me to remove a birthday crown I had on in class because it was a distraction. And me being a brat, just looked around at my fellow classmates was like, is anyone distracted? Uh, They all said no. My teacher got so mad that I got a detention. Um, (laughs) And during the detention, he told me that I would either go to jail or die if I kept having an attitude like this. And I was like, this seems very extreme. But I think about this moment so much because for me, that crown was the one thing that made me feel important on my birthday. And I felt like this teacher just took all authority from me on like who I was as a person and like how I was forming my identity. Like, Growing up, I always felt that no one really understood me and I was to blame for their inability to understand me. So when Beyonce dropped four, I was like, whoa, it's not really my job (laughs) to make anyone understand me. I'm just here to do what I want to do and share that with people when I find them. 
Well, you really write beautifully about this transition into a little more confidence through four in your essay, and I'd love for you to read a little bit from it for us. Yeah, of course. Before four dropped, every interaction I had outside my head failed miserably. It was a summer after seventh grade, a year I spent in and out of detention, arguing with anyone who wasn't my English teacher, and writing on my jeans with a permanent marker. Home was on a haven, and school was on a refuge. I was rebellious with a desperate desire to belong. I wanted to be understood, receive sans judgment, and I had no tools in my belt until four. I'm thinking about the the kind of connection between Julianne, the community, and the choreography and confidence of, of Salt and Peppa, and then Lindsay, the the vulnerability and falling apartness of, of Fiona and Beyonce. I don't know where she falls at this point in her career, at the point of four, on that spectrum. But that's what we were all looking for, maybe for music at that time. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's really striking that all three of our essays kind of touch on that, almost looking to be heard by hearing these women. And, you know, I think that speaks to how generally isolating it can be to be a teen girl overall. Like my my mom worked several jobs as well, and I spent a lot of time alone, and I actually didn't even think of how that connected until you said that, Letitia, of just like when I was alone, in my house, it was like my friends were Salt and Peppa and Janet Jackson and whoever yeah. else. And Letitia, was there a moment, a musical moment on four that kind of embodies what, what Julianne's talking about? Oh, absolutely. Can we cue up School and Life by Beyonce? So School and Life is like a forever jam to me, but I love it emotionally because it's a very simple declarative song. When B is like, I'm a freak all day, all night. I'm a freak all day, all night. I remember hearing that and being like, what? <laughs> like this was a word that people threw at me and I threw back in retaliation. And it was being used as such a confidence booster for like the biggest star in the world at the time. And that was so alien to me. I would always wonder, why are you so proud to be a freak, Beyonce? Do you not want to be perfect? Don't you want people to love you? That says a lot about my psyche. <laughs> um, and she's literally saying here, like, no, I'm not an expert in anything, but I have so much to offer and so much to give. And those that get it will get it and appreciate it. Um, and I don't have to be perfect in doing that. And I think after listening to Schooling Life for at least like three months before I really got what she was trying to say. Um, I just felt so much more empowered. <laughs> I started experimenting more with how I dressed, expressing myself. I just showed up more and I was less scared. I think I was still lonely, but I finally realized that I had my back in my loneliness, you know? I love the whole idea of Beyonce as a misfit. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, she was a misfit. Like, she was bullied, like, in elementary school and middle school because she was so perfect. But it's like, I don't know, this, like, instinct to just destroy people for thinking that they're someone they're not is so interesting to me. Well, that is a great lead-in to talk about Fiona Apple if I ever heard one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lindsay, do you want to explain a little bit about uh, 
your connection to title. You start your essay with such an amazing scene. I mean, I think the first line of the essay is the first time I heard Fiona Apple, I was in a hospital bed. You can't start better than that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I The first time I heard the full record, I was. You know, this was um, 1997. So she had quite a few hits on alternative rock radio in the 90s. And at a moment when there were a sort of unprecedented amount of female voices in the alt-rock scene very briefly before they pretty much disappeared around the turn of the millennium. So I really gravitated towards songs like Shadow Boxer and Sleep to Dream that were hits. And I had this experience going into fifth grade that summer where I got a really strangely severe case of appendicitis and was hospitalized and had to undergo a lot of tests because they didn't really understand what it was. It didn't look like a normal case of appendicitis. So it was a really scary time for me and my family. And also me just being 10 years old, about to turn 11, you know, on the brink of my body changing in all these ways and and becoming a woman's body in the public eye before I was really ready to deal with the consequences of that. And it was just a really confusing time to be going through even that in a normal context. So having to deal with this illness, there were questions about my reproductive ability and and my fertility that were coming up like related to this, that when you're 10 and 11 years old, that's the most embarrassing thing to have to talk about with a doctor or something like that. So I remember a lot of shame around it, a lot of just like confusion. And, you know, you're looking for art that makes sense to you in a moment like that. So my aunt and uncle got me a Sony Discman as a gift (laughs) in the a uh, very 90s gift when I was in the hospital and I my dad got me a couple of CDs and I said I want Fiona Apple's title so he brought me that and I listened to it when I was sick and it just something about her way of expressing pain particularly a young girl's pain days like this I don't know what to do with myself oh So it was just a really kind of emotional time in my life and her her music obviously has such a depth of emotion that I think it really spoke to me and continued to get me through a pretty difficult time throughout middle school that, you know, that record was really like a source of strength for me and she seemed to have the words when I didn't. Lindsay, I'm going to ask you to read a little bit of your essay for us, but first we're going to take a short break. This message comes from our 2022 lead sponsor of NPR Music, State Farm. To celebrate their surprisingly great rates, State Farm invites you to discover the surprisingly great genre, Boston hip-hop. It's not just your everyday hip-hop with a thick Boston accent. Boston hip-hop is known for its gritty beat, DIY stages, and underground music scene. It actually got its start at Harvard and MIT's radio stations. This beat's got brains and beauty. Make sure to check out Boston hip-hop, then check out State Farm's surprisingly great rates. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It's All Songs Considered. I'm Ann Powers, here with some of our amazing Turning the Tables writers, Letitia Harris, Julianne Escobedo-Shepard, and Lindsay Zolads. Lindsay, you write so beautifully in your essay about Fiona Apple's title. 
Can you read a little bit for us? I wrote down bits of titles vocabulary to look up later in the dictionary. Sullen, undulate, appease, carry on. So many things hovered just outside of my understanding at that time. Sometimes when you're young, the weight of all that you don't know can accumulate and rush above your head, making it feel like you're drowning. Apple, who was just 18 when Title was released, and even younger than that when she wrote it, seemed to understand this too. But her music offered a way out. As she reflected in a spin cover story in November of that year, I'm underwater most of the time, and music is like a tube up to the surface that I can breathe through. It's my air hole up to the world. My air hole up to the world. I so relate to that in terms of what music meant to me as a teenager. Let's hear a song from Tidal that that meant a lot to you. In fact, you shared it with the world in a particular way, but let's hear it first before you tell the story of how you shared it with the world. This is Never is a Promise by Fiona Apple from the album Tidal. grade in my humanities class, I had to um, memorize and read a poem, a favorite poem to the class, which I was really shy then and, and I had had a difficult time in middle school and I hated talking in front of the class or having to like pick something to present. That was a nightmare for me. But I got this idea that I sort of realized like my favorite poem is Never is a Promise by Fiona Apple. And I read it to the class. I didn't, I already had it memorized. So it was a pretty easy assignment because I had listened to the song hundreds of times. But everyone else in the class read a Shakespearean sonnet or something that they thought was sort of passed down to them as this is what a poem is. But never is a promise and you In picking this song and and kind of elevating what was like a pop art form and and saying, no, this means as much to me as a poem written centuries ago, I kind of look back on my younger self with some admiration of, of kind of how bold that was to make that choice. And I think in some ways it's like the beginning of me understanding that like writing about music, engaging with music, like all of these things can be art forms and maybe it was something I wanted to try to do with my life. So I think for for a very literary <laughs> young teen, Fiona Apple was a really good uh, entry point for a lot of things for me. That's a critic right there. That's a critic. That's a little baby critic. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> but, you know, let, let's pull the thread among all these experiences and think about how these moments did feed you as the future critics, future writers that you were. I mean, I'll, I'll shoot it to you, Julianne. Like, what about the Salt and Pepper experience, uh, falling in love with them, still feeds who you are today? You know, I think I wrote a lot about how they taught me just these like sort of basic tenets of feminism, like through osmosis about like double standard and 
I think actually one thing that really got me about all of salt and Pepper's work was just a, that was the first time I remember really listening to production and just being like blown away that music could sound like that. And I'd heard rap before was listening to <laughs> iced tea in like fifth grade, <laughs> which was maybe a little bit, <laughs> you know, my mom didn't know about that. And then I was thinking about expression earlier and why I love it so much aside from its message, which is really about like recognizing people's differences and about accepting people as they are, which I definitely related to as a kid, as the weird kid, but also just their cadences and the syntax of the way that they wrote their lyrics and also the interplay. I mean, I think that comes in quite a lot with just the idea of, you know, hot damn, I got an all girl band. It's like, well, we're actually like working together in these really harmonious ways, which <laughs> really <laughs> informed my later ideas about like collectivist feminism, I guess. But um, yeah. I think it, fully set me on the path to music criticism. When I first sat down to write this essay, I was like, no one's going to understand how seriously I take this Beyonce record. Like everyone thinks it's a flop. <laughs> People think Beyonce is like some random pop star. Um, and no one gets how seriously these emotions like stand for me. I was really worried I would have to defend it. And then going through the process of writing, I was like, oh, this is the exact feeling I had when I was a tween hearing this for the first time. I <laughs> didn't think anyone was going to take me seriously. And I felt like I had to defend my emotions. So writing through that was really um, cathartic for me. As someone who's been in this game for a little bit, as I was reminded when I read Lindsay's essay and she said, well, when I was 10, Princess Diana died, and I remembered that I was, like, with my husband in the in the Berkshires when Diana died, so I'm a different generation. <laughs> <laughs> but just that sense of feeling like you have to continually renew your own sense of legitimacy, that is real. That is so real for me all these decades into my career. And I think some of it is just internalized Let's be honest, we're women in a field that still is so defined by male voices, male-determined hierarchies. It's, it, am I making sense here? Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, yes. I was really inspired by Fiona's more recent work, and, and particularly the album Fetch the Bolt Cutters from 2020, which is possibly her greatest work yet. And I something that I really responded to was how she was going back on a song like Shamika to that turbulent time in her life. I used to walk down the streets on my way to school, grinding my teeth to a rhythm invisible. And as a woman in her 40s now, and an artist in her 40s, saying that the experience she had gone through in middle school and high school was important enough that she could still be figuring it out and making art from it and sort of digging into what it meant about her adult selfhood when she was a much more mature artist. And I think, you know, through Fiona going back to that period of time in her life, it kind of gave me the confidence to look with a little more scrutiny at that time in my life and see, you know, that there was a lot more there than I had given it credit for and, and that there are still threads about that time that I'm untangling 
20, 25 years later. I'm just wondering what y'all think of like the concept of interiority and how it's like defined by being um, so lonely for all of us. I feel like I wonder all the time, like if I was not such a lonely kid and thought I was separate from the world and just like downtrodden and like beat on all the time, how much interiority I would have. And like, I think given who I am today, I'm like, I wouldn't trade that for the world, but I'm like, did I need to experience all this conflict <laughs> to become someone who's smart and has things to say? <laughs> Ooh, that's a heavy one. <laughs> that's the writer question. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I think I, again, just to go back to sort of journaling and now seeing like that time that I spent alone sort of like learning how to write in my own voice like it feels like that time however painful it was and however painful a lot of the experience I was documenting was that's how I began to teach myself my craft that I'm making a living from now so I think that that experience was slowly making me into who I was going to become yeah I wouldn't (laughs) I wouldn't relive it but I also wouldn't remove it I mean I'm writing a book about it for goodness sakes Um, (laughs) can't wait wait. (laughs) we'll see when it comes out (laughs) 2023 Um, but actually something that you said Lindsay about Fiona really resonated with me in this idea that in her 40s she's going back to that time and that's kind of what I'm doing right now as a, a writer I'm in my 40s and There's a sense of sort of invisibility that comes with aging for women and women music critics for sure. You know, I was talking with Anne yesterday just about how I'm seeing a lot of my peers who were my age or a little bit older just sort of become invisibilized, you know, and even as there are a lot more, thankfully, women music critics working in prominent places than there were when I was coming up and kind of in my 20s and 30s. I'm seeing a lot of women sort of go behind the scenes, do editing, drop out entirely. And, you know, Anne pointed out to me that it is definitely because you get paid more <laughs> when, yeah, when you're editing. Yes, it's true. It's And that's a really important consideration. But I do wonder how much of like just in general Fiona and even Beyonce, honestly's uh, internal meditation in their art has to do with this sort of parallel feeling that you can get as a woman entering middle age of just sort of, you know, I don't want to scare anyone because I I do not feel like I did when I was twelve. <laughs> That's good at all. That's good to hear. Yeah, like it's reassuring. Yeah, like I'm much more confident. I know who I am. <laughs> it's fine. But just I'm in this moment of really kind of nurturing that part of me that felt so isolated, and it's really fulfilling. Well, I I think. Something that's that I'm finding interesting and in thinking about Beyonce and Fiona together particularly is I think that they're both artists who had to really put work into outliving the ingenue role. Like mm. they both came on the scene at really precocious ages and were slotted into these roles that were kind of like, you have like two albums to be interesting And then you're going to be, what, 25 and we're on to the next. And I think in looking at how they both 
we're able to mature into adult female artists, which is so difficult in our society, particularly in pop culture. Like, I think for both of them, there was like a moment where they needed to step away and kind of regroup and become themselves. And I think, Letitia, you really zeroed in on the moment that Beyonce had to do that. I think for, I, it's one of my favorite of her albums, and I think it's super underrated because it is, you're right, it's the moment before she becomes this avant-garde pop star of her second yes. phase. And it didn't just happen overnight, but there's something in the gap between Sasha Fierce and Ford that is like her taking a step back and saying like, I'm going to be a whole grown woman in public yes. and in my art. And I think that's something that Fiona Apple did sort of in the 2000s when she, you know, took a lot of time between albums, was engaged in battle with her record company and having to really fight to get her artistic vision out there. I, that's so difficult for a woman in the music industry, but I think both of them, the work that they've been able to do in their 30s and now 40s really speaks to the importance of getting to watch a female artist mature over the decades. Yeah, because you don't really get to see that. It's like, I think someone's always trying to keep us infantile and like small and down, and then we're not really allowed to grow and we have to take that on for ourselves. Um, so watching them like fight <laughs> to grow up in the music industry and like be respected and be treated seriously with their maturity, even though they didn't get that in their youth and like really demand space for themselves and create that space for themselves is really admirable. And I think that's even harder to do if you're in a group or like in community, just to mm -hmm. throw it on back to salt and pepper. But I mean, a group like salt and pepper gets re relegated to the oldies circuit way before yes. their time, because it's really hard to perceive of a group of women as, you know, having a genuine vision that, that can grow and mature, I think. Yeah. And also, you know, I didn't even see them live until like 2009 or something, you know, because they weren't playing like that. And they've had an interesting career trajectory. But it is true that it's much harder, I think. I mean, even I saw TLC this summer. It was an amazing concert. It was at the Coney <laughs> Island Amphitheater. But you know, just seeing them still sort of be completely on their game. Like, they sounded amazing. And after I saw it, like, a week later, I was talking to a fellow music critic, and he didn't even know that it had happened. That's indicative to me. And no, you know, no shade to this person, if you're listening. But, like, it sort of is indicative of, like, TLC playing in Coney Island in the open air, you know, next to the sea with bone thugs, by the way, is not, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it was great, is not like something that's on like the radar of a working music critic is a little bit telling. It's like the history of our lives is the history of um, invisibility, fighting against invisibility welcoming invisibility. I want to say audibility. It's about, you know, mm. striving to be heard, maybe sometimes wanting to be able to go back in that place where you're only communing with yourself. But in the end, as writers, especially hoping that our words reach beyond ourselves. And yeah, wow, 
Well, we got to some profound places in this conversation. I, I really, I just want to thank you all for being so honest and open. Thank you, Julianne, Lindsay, and Letitia for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's been an honor. And thanks to everyone out there listening. Tune in next week when we'll have a conversation with Donnie Walton, who wrote one of my very favorite novels of last year, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, and the podcaster and critic Christina Lee about finding success on your own terms and in your own time. And we'll be revisiting some of the very issues that we started to talk about this week. And you can read all of the essays we're talking about in this series at npr.org slash turning the tables. For NPR Music, I'm Ann Powers. It's All Songs Considered.